with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. If you're new to Bible reading, uh, that's near the end of your New Testament, uh, and we're going to read together 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. We'll have the verses up on the screen as well, and you can follow along, but, but let's read these words. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, and, and pagans not quite as derogatory of a term as we think when we read it today. It just essentially meant people who were not part of the mainstream faith. But live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Have you ever wondered how Christianity survived? You know, when Jesus finished his earthly ministry and when he left, there were just 120 people who were hanging out in the upper room of a building in Jerusalem, waiting and praying and asking God to send the gift of the Holy Spirit that he had promised them. Just 120 people, that's it. This whole Christianity movement began with just 120 people. In fact, let me just really quickly read that to you in the Scripture's own words. In Acts 1-3, it says, After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then over in verse 15, it says, In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost came. So this was the few days later that Jesus mentioned and Pentecost happens 50 days after Easter Sunday. So this was 50 days after Jesus was raised from the dead. It says they were all together in one place, 120 of them. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So they were uh, filled with and empowered by and baptized with the Holy Spirit. God in the flesh, Jesus, had been with them, and now God the Holy Spirit was going to be with them. And this was the beginning of Christianity as we know it. This happened in around 30-ish A.D. Uh, 120 people waited and prayed in the upper room. Well, in 313 A.D., so what is that, about 280-ish years later, the Roman Emperor Constantine, and by the way, who killed Jesus? The, the Roman Empire. Uh, who, who instigated the severe persecutions against Christians? 
the Roman Empire. It's going to be the same answer for all these questions. <laughs> Who was the greatest superpower in the world at that time? The Roman Empire. So in, in, in uh, 313 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine legalized Christianity. And he put an end to the persecutions that had come against Christianity. In the decades following the time of Christ, there was some severe persecution of Christians. It wasn't constant. It wasn't just an instant, you know, constant massacre. It kind of came in waves. But there were some seasons where persecution was brutal. In fact, of the 12 original disciples of Jesus, 10 of them were executed. They were martyred for their faith. The apostle Paul was executed for his faith. He was killed by the Roman Empire. He was killed in Rome. So about 250 years after the time of Paul, after he's killed by Rome, uh, the Roman emperor legalizes Christianity, stops the persecution, and then in 380 AD, Christianity actually was installed as the official state religion of the Roman Empire. How in the world did that happen? How did this faith that you're a part of today, how did it go from 120 people in an upper room in a little building in Jerusalem, which is part of Israel, which is a nation the size of New Jersey? Do you know the entire nation of Israel is less than half the size of San Bernardino County? How did a religion from that part of the world spread so effectively in a few centuries that it actually becomes the state religion of the greatest empire of the world? Um, th there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world today. Christianity is the largest religion in the world. How does this thing keep spreading? Now, Christianity is on the decline in America today. There's actually writing out there today, a lot of books coming out saying that we're now a post-Christian nation here in America. Now, that does not mean that Christianity is dead or even dying in America. What that means is that culturally, as a country, we've moved beyond Christianity. Christianity was the foundation of our, our nation, but now we've been there, we've done that, we moved on to other things. But you know what? That's not the case worldwide. There are parts of our world today where Christianity is blowing up. It is exploding in Africa. It's exploding in South America. In China, which has the largest population of any country in the world today, Christianity is growing faster than it has ever grown in the history of Christianity since the time of the apostles, and that's communist China. How does this keep happening? How does this keep uh, growing and spreading and changing lives in spite of our flaws. Have any of you ever been hurt in church? Anybody ever been hurt in church before? Jessica and I have been so hurt in the church at times in our life. We've been so hurt by people in the church, it almost cost us our faith. And yet, despite our issues, despite our flaws, everywhere that this thing spreads, lives change. People transform and, and good occurs. There must be more than meets the eye when it comes to the church. What, what is the church? You're in church today. What is the church? Is the church a group of people who gather to just worship God and learn more about God? Is that the church? Well, yes, that, that is the church, but how did that change the Roman Empire? You know, the Roman Empire was famous for its pantheon of gods. The Roman Empire had 
Zeus and Apollos and Aphrodite and Mars. So how did a little subset of people, how did Christians who said, we're going to add one more God to this pantheon, and we're not going to worship these other gods. We're only going to worship this one God. How did that impact the fate of the entire Roman Empire? But what is it that you and I are a part of today? <laughs> Do you ever hear people talk about their church? And, and it sounds like they're leaving a review on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> I was listening to two ladies at one of Maddie's volleyball games a few weeks ago. And I couldn't help it. These two moms were talking about their church. And so when they said church, I kind of perked up. And, and I got as close as I could without being creepy. And I, I kind of listened. And this one lady was describing her church. And she says, yeah, I, I really like my church. You know, people are really nice. The sermons are good. They're practical. I like that. Uh, I love the worship, especially when this particular worship leader is leading worship. And, you know, the kids in the youth group aren't too clicky. And the children's ministry is really nice. And I, I listened to it, and I, I thought, is that how God would describe what's happening here? Is that the extent of what we're a part of? Hey, the kids aren't too clicky, and I really like the worship. It's a very uplifting way to start my week. See, I seem to recall that Jesus said that he was going to build a church that had so much power behind it that the gates or the power structures of hell would melt like wax and people would be set free and delivered wherever the church goes. That's a little bit different from, yeah, I'd give Grace Laverne a 7.5 out of 10 on Rotten Tomatoes. I think there's more to the church than meets the eye. What are we a part of here? You know, we, our men's retreat last week started at 6 p.m. on Friday and it ended at 11 a.m. on Sunday. So counting the one hour of daylight savings that Mal robbed from all of us guys, you can ask him about that later, we were at men's retreat for 41 hours. That's less than two days. And listen, you would not believe the things that happened in 41 hours. Men bared their souls. There were guys that stood up and shared some of the most vulnerable parts of their, their life in front of the whole group because they felt safe enough to do that. Men wept. Men heard from God, and not just through the words of the speaker, but when the speaker sent us out for a prayer time to ask God some questions, men came back to our table saying, I think God communicated with me. There were men in 41 hours who actually said, I think my life changed this weekend. And the fun thing is, is they did all of that while still being just normal, regular guys. In fact, we were playing wiffle ball, and Nate Finlay was playing left field. And I watched Nate sprint across the outfield, catch a fly ball with a lit cigar in his mouth. <laughs> and I just thought, that's so weird. When I, look at, when I look at the church and we go from crying and weeping and lives changing to that, sometimes I feel like the hobbit Sam Gamgee when he said to Frodo in the two towers, I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. How did the church survive when the Roman Empire didn't? In the book of Philippians, at the very end of the book, the second to the last verse, the Apostle Paul says, all of the believers here send you greetings. 
especially those who are a part of Caesar's household. What? That was way before Constantine. Paul wrote Philippians in around 60 AD. So a couple of decades after the time of Christ, this thing had already spread into Caesar's own household. What sort of a story have you and I fallen into? Let's go back to um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We're going to start a new series today that we'll run with probably until we approach the Christmas holiday. So we'll just do a handful of weeks on this. We're going to do a series called The People of God. And we're going to kick this off today by writing our own version of the Bible. You've heard of the New International Version or the English Standard Version or the New American Standard. We're going to write our own version of the Bible. or Maybe not the whole Bible, but we're going to write our own version of one verse. We're going to do an old-fashioned word study here for a few minutes this morning, and, and we're going to take some of the words from 1 Peter 2.9, and I'm going to tear them apart and define them, and then we're going to put them all together at the end and rewrite that scripture. And in doing so, I think we'll have a clearer picture of what it means to be a part of the people of God. And I think we'll have a little bit of understanding about how this thing keeps surviving. And it will also, I think, be insightful for you to know how you keep surviving. Uh, French philosopher Hilaire Bloch said, the church is a perpetually defeated thing that always outlives her oppressors. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. But you are a chosen people. The word chosen means selected. The word chosen means selected out from multiple options. So this doesn't mean, well, I choose you because you're the only one left, so I have no one else to choose. But no, I have a lot of choices, but I want you. Um, it's kind of like what we did at the men's retreat when we were playing wiffle ball. Oh my gosh, I felt like I was in grade school all over again. We chose teams for wiffle ball, and Isaiah and Barry King and Jeff Jarvis were the cool kids, and they were choosing people to be on their team, and these guys just ticked me off. I, they, they, they actually had a little powwow to decide who they wanted to be on their wiffle ball team. They, they, they huddled up, they turned their back to us. And they're strategizing on whether or not they wanted Patrick or me to be on their team. And I was like, come on, you guys. Of, of course you want Patrick. I know you're going to pick him, but just pick him. You don't have to sit there and strategize and make me feel like I'm in grade school all over again. So um, maybe I need some therapy after a men's retreat. But, um, but listen, that's exactly what God did. God chose you. He wanted you. See, choice or selection implies a wanting. God wanted you. You are a chosen people. But notice with me that the word there is not person. The word is people. It doesn't say that you're a chosen person. It says you are a chosen people. See, American Christianity sometimes forgets that we're a people. The American story celebrates the rugged individual. 
In our American culture and ethos, we celebrate the pioneer or the the settler or the inventor or the lone ranger or the superhero. We celebrate the individual who succeeds against all odds. And of course, that makes a great story. And of course, we want to be that. And of course, there are special, amazing individuals in the Christian story. But in the Christian story, it's not about the individual accomplishments. It's about the people. The people is the emphasis. See, here's what the American gospel sounds like. Let me make some statements to you. And if you've been around church for a while, tell me if this sounds familiar. We tell people in church in America that God loves you so much, individual. God loves you so much, and he has a specialized plan for your personal individual life. Fortunately, the plan has been hijacked because sin has messed everything up, and we've all sinned, but that's okay. Because God loved you so much that he was willing to step into human history to walk in your shoes and to die on the cross for your sins so that when you die, you get to go to heaven and be with him forever. Now, that's true. And we tell people, if, if you were the only individual on the planet, God still would have died for you. And that is absolutely scriptural. That's Bible, and it's true, but it's incomplete. If that's the, the, the sum total of our message, it leaves it with this individualistic, it's all about Jesus and me and my experience. You are not just a forgiven individual. You are not just a saved person. The church didn't survive because a bunch of individuals had a little mountaintop experience where Jesus is in a tuxedo and it's just them and him and it's just this romantic personal experience. The church survived when they realized that they were a chosen people. See, one of the beautiful things about a men's retreat is that we're reminded that we're not alone. We're part of a brotherhood. We are not living this masculine journey alone. When you go to a men's retreat and you realize, I was made to walk alongside some other brothers. We're, we're part of a company of men. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. In fact, not even the people who seem like lone rangers are lone rangers, like John the Baptist, for instance. Doesn't John the Baptist seem like kind of a lone ranger type? He's so intimidating. John the Baptist was this man's man. He's this hairy guy. He lived in the wilderness, and he ate grasshoppers and wild honey, and he reminded everybody of the rugged prophet Elijah. And then when John the Baptist would preach, um, he wouldn't have needed a microphone, Isaiah. John the Baptist could have just, just belted it out, and he wasn't afraid to confront religious Israel and the Roman Empire, and he confronted nasty, perverted kings and called them on the carpet. But you know what? When John was unjustly arrested and sentenced to execution, he wasn't alone. The Bible tells us that he had disciples who were with him and came to him, and he could fight it in. Not even John the Baptist lived and walked alone. There were a band of brothers around him. So you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And the word royal there means a courtier. We don't use that word a whole lot today. A courtier is the part of uh, an entourage of a king. But it's not just a random entourage member because sometimes 
people who have an entourage, they have people who just like hanging around the big shot. And so they're just part of the crowd because I'm around the cool kids and I'm going to hang around them. That, that's not just what this word means. This word means somebody who belongs in the king's court. Uh, the word actually in the Greek literally means a company of kings. And that's why it gets translated royal. Now, not kings with a capital K. Jesus is the king with a capital K. Uh, but there are other kings. There are kings with a small K. Now, when we hear that phrase, that Jesus is king of kings, who do you normally think that the kings with the small K are? When we hear the phrase king of kings, don't you usually think that that means that Jesus is the best king out of all the kings? That out of all of the natural presidents and emperors and prime ministers and kings, Jesus is the greatest. Isn't that how we normally we think about that? But... Um, I don't know that that's the main emphasis or the only emphasis. Let me read you a quick passage. I'm going to read you um, a description of Jesus that John the Apostle had during his Revelation vision. You can read it up here, but do me a favor. As I read this, try and picture what I'm reading. So, so get a visual of the imagery, okay? Revelation 19.11 says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. You see a white horse? We're imagining. His rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, Coming out of his mouth is just a sharp sword. So his words are like the piercing of a sword that strikes the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, and here it is, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Interesting to me. That when John sees Jesus in this cosmic big picture perspective, Jesus has his name, he has his title written on his shirt and written on his thigh. You ever seen a, a lady wearing a shirt, older lady maybe wearing a shirt that says, Foxy Grandma? Or you ever see an older guy wearing a t-shirt that says, World's Greatest Grandpa? Or you've seen athletes wearing a jersey that has their name on the back of their jersey. Sometimes we people, we wear our name or we wear our title um, on our shirt. And when John sees Jesus, Jesus has his name on his shirt, but he also has his name tattooed on his thigh. See, in this vision, Jesus is riding a horse. And when you wear a robe and you ride a horse, when you straddle the horse, your robe comes up. So he's straddling the horse, and the robe comes up, and his thighs are revealed. And John sees that Jesus has a tattoo on his thigh, and it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's kind of a common thing when people who like tattoos get tattooed. They often tattoo sentiment about their loved ones on their body. Sometimes people will get the names of their loved ones inked into their skin. Sometimes 
people not only get the name of their loved one tattooed, some people get the face of their loved ones tattooed. You ever seen Sylvester Stallone's tattoo? Let me show you this picture. Sylvester Stallone, he's gonna have to stay buff to support that tattoo. He's got a full-on colored picture of his wife's face tattooed into his arm. But when somebody tattoos the sentiment about their children or their loved ones into their body, they don't usually get a tattoo that says, I'm a better dad than all of you dads out there. I'm the dad of dads. No, that, that, that's not how we get tattoos. We get tattoos that say, Sarah or Michael. And that lets everybody know that I'm Sarah's dad. I'm Michael's dad. When John saw this tattoo on Jesus' thigh, I don't think it was Jesus saying, I'm a better king than all of you kings out there. Now, that message was certainly being sent. I mean, remember the picture. He's, he's riding a war horse. He's wearing multiple crowns. He's at the head of the armies of heaven. Of course, there's a message being sent. Hey, listen, all of you forces of evil in the universe, I'm the king of kings with the capital K, and I'm here to take over. But I think there was also another message being sent. I think there was a message being sent to his family. Hey, people of God, my daughters, my sons, you are more than my entourage. You're more than worshipers who gather for an assembly. You're family. You're mine. I've put my nature in you. You're royalty. You're a company of kings, and I'm your king. In John 10, verse 31, Jesus was having a hard time with the religious people. In fact, they were planning on stoning him. In verse 31, it says, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, in your scripture? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the father has set apart for his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's son. If the scripture says that you're God's, small g, why are you getting uptight because I said that I'm the son of God? So, so listen, you are more than your labels. You are more than your gender. You are more than your ethnicity. You're more than your social class or your Myers-Briggs handle or your issues or your failures. You're God's, small g. You're kings, small k. You're a company of kings. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word priesthood in the Greek refers to the office or the function of priests. So this refers to what priests do. So what a priest does, a priest stands in between two worlds and tries to facilitate a meeting. A priest is a human bridge. So a priest has one foot in the natural world and another foot in the supernatural world, and the priest attempts to facilitate a meeting. 
So the Old Testament priests that Peter would have been thinking of when he wrote this, there were no Roman Catholic priests at the time, although they're kind of similar in function. What these priests would do is they would stand in between God and the people and try to facilitate a meeting. So an Old Testament priest would enter God's presence and they would hold the priest or the sins of the people and they would stand before God and ask God for mercy or forgiveness for the nation. Or they would come into God's presence and they would ask God for his will or his direction or his counsel for the people. Priests were intercessors. An intercessor is someone who stands in between two different parties and facilitates a meeting. In Revelation 1.6, John says that God has made us to be a kingdom of priests. Have any of you ever heard the, the term, the priesthood of the believers? Have you heard that term before? What that means is that we don't need a human priest to mediate between us and God. We don't have to have somebody stand as a human bridge because Jesus did that. Jesus removed the barrier. Jesus is our great high priest. So we can go to God personally and directly because we're priests. But not only are we priests that have access to God, but as priests, God has given us a priestly assignment or a priestly ministry for the world. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us, people of God, the message or the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. So you see the royal aspect. We're members of the royal court as though God were making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. See, that's a priest saying, let's facilitate a meeting. Let's connect with God. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And all I'm going to say right now about holy nation is that the word holy means set apart. Holy does not mean holier than thou. Holy does not mean perfect. It doesn't mean flawless. It doesn't mean free from all of your issues. Holy means set apart to serve a sacred purpose. And yes, when we serve a sacred purpose, we do become holier. And we do become more pure. And we do become more virtuous. But um, it doesn't mean we're better than others. It means we have been set apart to serve a special sacred purpose in the world. One more. You're a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That's the NIV version. The King James version of the Bible translates that differently. The King James version says that you are God's peculiar people. You ever read this out of the King James? Now, I understand why we've moved beyond peculiar and we don't use that word anymore because peculiar sounds weird. You are God's weird people. And there are certainly some weird Christians out there, certainly not here, but um, out there somewhere. But uh, if you were to look up the word peculiar in an English dictionary, it would give you two definitions. The first definition you would find is the, the phrase odd or unusual. So that's the way we've normally applied it. But there's a second definition that you would see in English, and the English second definition 
is much closer to the original Greek definition that Peter uses here. The second definition you would see in an English dictionary would tell you that peculiar means belonging exclusively to someone or belonging exclusively to something. For example, the air was filled with an antiseptic aroma that is peculiar to hospitals. That smell is a hospital smell. That smell belongs in the hospital. It means belonging exclusively to someone. And so that's why the NIV translates this, you are God's special possession. I was listening to a preacher once try to explain this phrase. And he said the best way to try and articulate what it means to be God's peculiar people or God's special possession is to talk about pocket money. What's pocket money? Well, if you get paid $5,000 in a month, and say you get your monthly paycheck, you get your $5,000, is that $5,000 yours? No. If you have a mortgage, part of it belongs to the bank that holds your mortgage, right? If you're renting a home, part of it belongs to your landlord who owns the house. If you have a car, part of it belongs to the gas station where you fuel up your vehicle. And if you want to eat, part of it belongs to Vaughn's or Hagen's that was Albertson's that's now Albertson's again. Sorry, that's just me and Amber, but that's a store in our neighborhood. But, but the point is, when you get your paycheck, you, you, you immediately have to parcel it out. And this goes here, and that goes there, and that goes there. And based on your obligations, by the time that's all done, your 5,000 might be 500. Or on a tight month, it might be 50. But even if, it's, even if it shrinks down to 50, that 50, that 500, that's your pocket money. That's yours. That's unassigned money. Nobody has a claim on my pocket money. My pocket money is my special. It's my treasure. I do what I want with that money. I can take that money to the bookstore if I want to. I can take it shopping. I can put it in a savings account. I can do what I want with that money because it's mine. That money serves my purpose. You are God's special possession. You're his pocket money. You were created to serve his purpose. We have the worship team rejoin me. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So let me put all of this together. And let me read you our Grace Church version of 1 Peter 2, verse 9. It goes like this. It says, God wanted you. When it came time to choose teams, heaven had a little powwow. The parliament of heaven met and decreed, we have got to have her. We have to have him. We want them to join the people of God. Yes, they are special individuals valued more than entire galaxies of created planets, but they're not supposed to be alone. They were made for community. They're not lone ranger superstars. They're my chosen people. They're contributing members of a larger whole. They're royalty. They're not just my servants 
and my worshipers and my entourage, their family, they're a company of kings, and I'm their king, and I will lead them into victory and life. They're a royal priesthood. They have direct access to me. They stand in between the natural world of this age and the ultimate reality of the age to come, and they bring the two together. They provide a priestly service for the world around them. They're a holy nation. They're a set-apart people, and they are mine. They're my special treasure, my pocket money that brings me delight. No one else has claims on them. They don't belong to creditors or cruel taskmasters or their issues or their sins. They're mine, and I've called them out of darkness into my wonderful light. And now, wherever they go, whether they're gathered here worshiping or whether they're scattered out in the world, they are carriers of my light. Their entire existence is a declaration of God's praise. And when they live like this, it is going to be so compelling that the entire pagan world is going to sit up and take notice. And listen, the church lived this. They believed it. They were a peculiar people. And today, there's 2.2 billion people in the world who are caught up in this message and experiencing this message because, not because of a marketing plan, not because of the most compelling campaign or a snazzy mission statement, because they lived their identity as the people of God. Hey, Grace, you are the people of God. We are the people of God. We're not a club. We're not a commodity. Some people might think this, but we are not just one religious option out of all the options out there. We're not a weekly moment of therapy, even though it's therapeutic to worship and seek God. We're his people. We gather here to worship him and learn about him. But then we scatter to live lives of such compelling, sacrificial love that it causes the world around us to stand up and take notice. The church survives because the church is so much more than meets the eye. You have survived because you are so much more than meets the eye. See, the cool thing about this is that it's very sneaky. It's very subversive. You might think you're a part of Grace Church because you like the worship or you like our amazing facility or you think the people here are really great and so you chose Grace instead of CCV or Purpose Church or some other amazing church. You might think that. You might think that you're just a Christian and you checked out what was available and this made sense and now you're a, a, an individual seeking God, but see, you're so much more than that because this is true of you whether you've ever thought it or not. This is true of you whether you've ever identified it or not. You are God's chosen people. And there is a power and there is a force that's at work in your life and it will sustain you and you will survive.